The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Is Christianity Still Relevant? Why Must It Change or Die? Ask Bishop Spong. Here's a guy who has taken on Christianity and yet still believes in it. Why? A now-retired Episcopal bishop for 24 years, a biblical scholar, independent thinker, best-selling author, and world-renowned speaker, John Shelby Spong, is calling for a new Christianity for a new world. Now, I'd really like to hear about that, because I was raised in mainstream Protestantism, and I left it when I was in college. And I'd like to hear his new perspectives on Christianity. If you strip away so much of what has been understood to be Christianity, why bother to be a Christian? Well, let's find out. From Bishop Spong, you can join the conversation, so email or call in your questions, and be part of a growing community of folks ready to be Inside Out. And now, here's your host of Inside Out, Beth Green. Hi, everybody. This is Beth and James, and we are now in beautiful downtown Ashland, Oregon. You never know where we're going to be next. We actually hope to be here for a while. We hope for stability for the Internet. We hope that everything is going to go smoothly. (laughs) You know what that means. The sky will probably fall. So here we go. Uh, First of all, I should... um, tell you that we got some interesting responses to our show last week. Now, for those of you who were not with us, our show last week was about w- when are we supposed to persevere and when are we supposed to give up? You know, when are we giving up too soon versus when are we pushing it and it's just unrealistic? And So we got a couple of uh, important uh, messages. One of them was... Unfortunately, too late. Alinda Johnson called. Our guest was Erica Myers, and she uh, had identified herself as somebody who is a quitter, but she has managed to fight her way back from uh, deadly illnesses twice, and so she was an interesting guest. And Linda had said, I want to ask Erica a question. Where do you find the strength to fight for a second time? Um, And the question was longer than that. Well, unfortunately, Linda's email got to us five minutes after the show ended. But I'm happy to say that we were able to send Linda's email right on to Erica, so I know they have been in touch. And let's see what else. Uh, We also got a lovely message from Mary Stein in Kansas City. And she said, Madam Mazurka again nailed the obvious truth. We expect a grand transformation whenever we discover an important truth, but there is no poof or magic wand, just everyday persistence in small ways until we have changed in a large way emotionally. Like Helen, who is a person who called, and I've been trying to see my reactions and interactions from the side of the other person. Am I playing a role that makes me look feel, uh, feel or look good, but damages another person who needs me to be real? See, what we were talking about is how sometimes... We just keep going and we persevere, uh, pushing, let's say, oh, I'm going to continue supporting my child who's a drug addict or I'm not going to give up on my invention, whatever it is, because of some idea we have in our head about the way we're supposed to look or who, what kind of people we are. And we're not really being connected to what's real in the situation. Are we really helping? Are we, you know, enabling the child while we're trying to look like a hero? Uh, or are we just too scared to look like fools so we give up because we don't want anybody to think that somebody took advantage of us. So there was really a lot in the show about how we look, what our image is, and how we have to get past image in order to really take a look at whether or not what we're doing should be continued or shouldn't. So it was a very, very good discussion. I suggest you listen in on the podcast if you haven't, and I know we scratched the surface of it. Mary had a lot more to say on it as well. So 
But right now, I'd like to switch over to the topic about Christianity, about um, new spirituality in general. And I do encourage you to send in emails if you don't want to call in right now. Send us an email to beth at bethgreen.org. So, since we're going to be talking about spirituality and religion, why don't we take a moment to take a breath. (sighs) I'm sure all of you out there have some opinion about religion and spirituality. Some of you are true believers. Some of you were brought up in the church and hate it. Some of you were brought up in the church and hated it and then it went back to it and Some of you were brought up in the church, whatever church, and still love it, and church, synagogue, mosque, it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of feelings that come about religion. Uh, Did they say that you can talk about anything but religion, and I can't remember what, the other two things were politics and religion. That's the things that it's not safe to discuss. So, but we'd like to leap into the question about religion and how it impacts us and how we feel about it, and whether we think that it is still relevant. So I'd like to start out by saying, by the way, that we never know when our guest co-host, Madame Mazurka, and the guru might just show up. So, so far, I don't know if either of them is behind the scenes, but those of you who don't know Madame Mazurka and don't know the guru, they are these characters that come out of my mouth, and I really have no control over what they say. Sometimes they say things that I love. Sometimes they insult me. Uh, sometimes they compete with me as to who's going to be hosting the show. So um, whatever, they're always, you know, they, we have an open invitation to them uh, to, uh, to join us. So I'd like to start out with discussing what is the purpose of spirituality or religion to start with. And here's something that I'd like to share. Often what we find is that people are in religions less for spiritual reasons than for social reasons. Oh, my mother and father were in this religion. My family wouldn't like it if I dropped out. I'm going to do loop service. I know that that was something that happened to me. Uh, My mother was not a religious person, but her mother was a religious Jew, and so we had to keep a kosher house to satisfy grandma. But there was no real spirituality there. I'm sure that that's true in many situations. Uh, Also, sometimes people are religious because of political uh, considerations. And when I say political considerations, I don't only mean if you're a politician. Like, oh, it's going to look good with the born-agains if you are a born-again. And again, where is the spirituality? And some people are into religion or spirituality because of fear. You know, people say, oh my God, supposing I find out when I died that there was a God and I didn't show that I was religious and that I'm going to get punished. So <laughs> where is spirituality? What is its purpose? I'll tell you what I think. I think the purpose of spirituality is to help us to live Life on life's terms, but with grace, with kindness towards ourselves, towards compassion for us all. And that's why we talk about the new spirituality, which is really a very different way of being spiritual where there is, we emphasize healing, we emphasize oneness, we emphasize connecting to others, and we connect, uh, emphasize the evolution of God. But I'm not going to get into that right now because I see that our guest is on the line, and I'd like to quickly bring him in so I can introduce you to him. I'm so happy to introduce you to Bishop John Spong. Welcome. How are you? Hi. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing well. I cannot tell you how happy I am that you showed up. First of all, what do you want me to call you? What do you want what? What do you want me to call you? How do you like to be called? Do you like to be called Bishop Spong? I'm no, used to calling you. I don't really care. Can I call you John? Jack, that's fine with me. Oh, can I call you Jack? Sure. Okay, well then that means that we're friends. uh, And until I become either the Pope or God, you must always call me Jack. Once I become the Pope, then you've got to call me Your Holiness. (laughs) I am so relieved because actually I wrote to your assistant and I said, can I call him John? Because I'm not used to calling people by their last names and it seems so so formal. Well, the first thing I want to ask you, uh, Jack is um, 
How does it feel? Now, this may seem very presumptuous to you, but I just read an article that was sent to me by your, uh, you know, your whoever was arranging this for you, about how so many of the things that you had been believing in and had been advocating for, how many of those things are now accepted, at least accepted largely in many yeah. people in the church. So yeah, I, really, is, I, really do, I really do feel a sense of transition so that I'm not even thought of as controversial anymore, and that's kind of pleasant, although I don't mind being controversial. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church in North Carolina, an Episcopal church, that taught me that segregation was the will of God and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me that women were born inferior to men and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me it was okay to hate other religions, and especially the Jews, and quoted the Bible to prove it. And they taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved and quoted the Bible to prove it. And I've spent a great deal of my life trying to overcome the prejudices and the dehumanizations that were taught to me by my church. Now, I look at my church today, and the, the Episcopal Church has one bishop in North Carolina, and his name is Michael Curry, and he's an African-American. He's elected by the people. That's an enormous transition. Oh, my. Uh, secondly, we've got uh, 40% of our clergy today are women, and our presiding bishop is a woman, and fantastic woman, I might say. And, and thirdly, when we last did our prayer book revision, we asked a panel of rabbis to go over it to make sure there was no hidden anti-Semitism in it that we were not aware of. And fourthly, when I retired, I had 35 out-of-the-closet gay and lesbian clergy serving in the diocese. 31 of them lived with their partners, and, and we have finally gotten gay marriage approved, not by the governor, but by the, leg- not by, the, by the legislature. The governor vetoed it, and then the Supreme Court overruled the governor. So we now have gay marriage as of a week ago on Monday. And so, that, you know, for one lifetime, we have yeah, it's amazing. Bishops, two out-of-the-closet gay bishops in the Episcopal Church today, a man and a woman. In one lifetime, that's an enormous amount of transition, and I feel very gratified about it. You know, I love your reaction because I was going to ask you if there's ever a moment where it feels odd to you to go from being a maverick to being kind of obsolete. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll have to check on that. Uh, I, I can still get into some confrontations from time to time, which I... I want to hear that. I want to hear that. What is the fight that you're fighting now? We're going to be going into a commercial break in just a second, but I'd like to uh, invite everybody who's listening in uh, to hang in there, listen to the commercial, and come back, because in a few minutes, I'd like to ask Jack, what are the fights that he thinks are really still important? So hold that thought, and Don't go away. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are very happy to have a lovely man as well as a biblical scholar, 
a former maverick who is becoming a relic like me. Don't tell him that. And uh, <laughs> Bishop John Spong, who is an Episcopal bishop, now retired from Newark, and he was one of the pioneers of the reform movement in the Episcopal Church, which has just been incredible to see. He was sharing with us before the break what an incredible transformation there is. But before um, he tells us more about that struggle, and I'd love to hear some of your In the Trenches story, uh, Jack, I'd like to first ask you, what do you think are the battles that need to be fought now? Well, I think the biggest battle is to try to take this historic faith tradition that we call Christianity and cause it to relate to a very different world from the one in which it was created. The the New Testament was written in the first century when everybody believed that the earth was the center of a three-tiered universe where nobody had ever heard of a germ or a virus and so they thought sickness was a divine punishment for your sins. The creeds that we recite in church were written in the fourth century and they basically reflect a dualistic worldview with God and, and the world separated so that you've got to tell the Jesus story about how the God above the sky comes into the to the human arena in a supernatural and miraculous way and lives sort of as a... Well, I, one of the analogies I use is that sometimes when you hear Jesus being talked about, you think that Jesus is to God what Clark Kent is to Superman, that Jesus is sort of God in disguise walking around until he's ready to to sort of do the divine thing. And most of the worship forms that we use come right out of the 13th century. So we're using a 1st century Bible and a 4th century creed and a 13th century worship forms, and we're trying to engage the intellectual lives of people who live in the 21st century. And church has never done that very well. You know, we we spent spent a lot of time putting Galileo on trial. Uh, Religious people today still can't relate to Charles Darwin. They keep bringing out one idea after another to try to save the creation story from Darwin's impact. Uh, they haven't come close to embracing relativity or, or some of the astrophysical uh, understandings of the origins of the universe. The fact that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and that the first 10 billion years there was no such thing as life on it is just a mystery to most religious people. They haven't engaged that. If Christianity is going to live, and I want it to, because I think it's got something very powerful to say, it's got to engage the world of today. And most of our symbols do not. So when I write, and and that's where I'm still fairly controversial, what I'm doing is trying to examine uh, the scriptures of the first century in the light of 21st century knowledge and force them to relate to each other. Uh, one example, I, I just published a book on John's Gospel, and probably the most most uh, best-known story in John's Gospel is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's the only place in the entire Christian tradition where the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is told, and John's written between 95 and 100. So somehow, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead didn't get any mention for 65 to 70 years after the crucifixion, if, of course, it was an actual historical event. If you go back and read that story, you'll find that that Jesus is very close to this family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus appear to be uh, a family that he knows very well. He gets notified that Lazarus is sick. He waits a long time until after Lazarus dies before he goes. When he gets there, they've already buried Lazarus. He's been in the grave for four days. The King James Version of the text says, already he stinketh, unquote, which is a rather interesting (laughs) description of, of the decay of the flesh. His critics are there, and he goes into town, and he walks out to the tomb with all this crowd of people around, including critics. And he calls Lazarus, and he comes walking out of the grave, bound up in his grave clothes. Now, do you really think that could have happened? And 65 to 70 years passed before anybody thought it was worthy of writing about? I think that's kind of absurd. Uh, But that's not not what John is writing about. But we've read John literally for so long, we think that if somebody comes along and says maybe that's not a literal story, that uh, there must be something wrong with the critic. Now, there's a a, interesting thing about that story is that John uses that story to bring about the crucifixion. That's That's the catalytic event that causes the authorities to move to destroy Jesus. And if you go back to Luke's gospel, you'll find that there's a parable about a man named Lazarus who dies and goes to heaven. 
And there's a fellow named Dives, who is a rich man who never paid much attention to Lazarus, and he dies, and he goes to a place of punishment. And then there's a conversation between the two in this parable, where Dives asks Abraham to send uh, Lazarus back to earth to warn his brothers, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, Dives, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen, even if one is raised from the dead. John mm. takes that story and turns it into a historical narrative. One is raised from the dead, and what's the result? They do not hear. They move immediately mm. to put him to death. That's mm. the way John wrote that story. It never occurred to John to think that somebody in the 20th century or 19th century would take that story literally. Mm. But that's just because we don't understand how the Bible was written. Now, when you begin to say that, uh, you get sort of interesting reactions. Where they, they think you're a heretic. All I'm trying to do is to recover what the the Jewish authors of those gospel traditions meant when they wrote their story, and they weren't writing literal history, and every one of them knew it. Yes. Yes, that's a fascinating book. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've been reading it. I have some questions, though. What do you think is the, other than the historic interest or the patent absurdity, what is the impact on our society of people continuing to give literal interpretations to the Bible that you are trying to debunk? Well, the two major impacts are, first of all, the Christian church is shrinking uh, perceptibly, particularly the mainline traditions who know too much to be fundamentalist and don't know anything else to do about it except to sort of be non-fundamentalist, but they don't know how to do that. Mm. Now, the only part of the church that's growing is the is the historical sort of fundamentalist who who want to believe they've got the literal word of God caught in these scriptures, and basically that growth is growing in the third world where the educational system is not very good and where superstition is still high. And when they go through the intellectual revolution that we've been through in the West, from Copernicus to Galileo to Newton to Darwin to Einstein and and maybe Stephen Hawking. They won't be able to look at these things in the same way either, but right now they haven't been through that. So fundamentalistic churches are growing. Uh, they're not growing in the developed parts of the world. The Christian church in Europe is really dead. Uh, I've just come from a lecture tour of Italy and Spain, and although both are totally Catholic in their religious outlook, they're also totally secular. Nobody goes to church in either one of those countries. Mm. I interviewed a I interviewed a Roman priest in Madrid, and he said, oh, nobody comes to church today except a few elderly women. And mm. he didn't seem to be terribly bothered by that, but that's just a reality. Uh, and I'm Italy fascinated by what you're saying about the fundamentalist churches not growing here, because I had always thought that they uh, were. I mean, certainly their impact is so tremendous on our political system that you get the impression that every other person on the block is fundamentalist. Well, in the South, that's probably true. I grew up in North Carolina, and, and you know, fundamentalists are outnumbered only by the sparrows in North Carolina. Mm. Uh, but, but my goodness, up in this metropolitan New York area where I live, if people come to church on Sunday mornings because they want to, there's absolutely no social pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great cathedrals up here are the football stadiums, and they have liturgical dance and and uh, wear vestments and do all sorts of things. We call them uniforms, and we call them cheerleaders, but you know what they've got is a great outdoor cathedral where people chant and sing and do all sorts of things that we used to do in church. But I find it really refreshing. I really loved being in the metropolitan New York area because I could assume that there was something motivating these people besides social pressure. Going to church is not mm-hmm. the thing to do. If they come to church, it's because they've got a yearning and an eagerness uh, I teach a class in our congregation when I'm in town, which is not too often, but I do at least 10 Sundays a year there. And we have a tremendous response of people. And lots of them aren't going to church anywhere, but they come because they want to be, they want to be educated. And I teach that class the same way I would teach if I was teaching at Harvard Divinity School or Union Seminary in New York. I'm not, I'm not going to spend my time trying to protect their sort of Sunday school version of God. Mm-hmm. Well, they're Santa Claus God, which is basically what it is. If I'm a good boy or a good girl, God will give me A, B, C, and D. It's really a, a kind of religious Santa Claus that we've got going on. 
And, and instead of being repelled, I find that people come in great numbers because they, this is something that's intelligible to them. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is so fascinating. So much in church isn't. Uh, this, uh, this is fascinating to me because in 1982, I think, I had a mystical experience a very powerful mystical experience. I, I didn't become a spiritual teacher because I was raised Jewish. I can tell you that. <laughs> because I was raised in a, uh, a religion where you go to the synagogue and you had to read this book of prayer and it said, thank God I wasn't made a woman. And I thought, but I was. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there was nothing there for me. But I had, and I became an atheist for a very long time. And uh, in my mid-30s, I had a spiritual awakening that just kind of blew me away. And I started hearing inner voices and all of that. And um, early on, I had this vision of this light. And uh, it was one of those super-duper mystical experiences, you know, that, that you like to have. But the most important thing about that experience was that I, I heard this inner voice and it said, it was God speaking to me, and God said, remember, Beth, God is changing. And I had been taught that God was perfect and permanent, and it was the rest of us that were imperfect, and so I was sort of stunned by that revelation. And I, oh. I, I said, God, what do you mean by that? And God said, well, Beth, are you part of me? And I said, well, sure, duh. He said, well, are you changing? And I said, well, of course, duh. And he said, well, if you're me and you're changing, I must be changing too. And this yeah. concept of God as not fixed, not static, yeah. and not perfect, what completely yeah. blew me out of the water. And I yeah. began to realize that there is no perfect God and imperfect people. In fact, what I mean, I was guided to write a book called The Healing of God, that it's about we're healing God, God isn't healing us, because we are the God that's healing itself, that's in the process of evolution, and that yep. that's the way it's supposed to be. We're so, yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's right dead on, and you see, we do the same thing with life. The, the Christian myth says that there was an original perfection in life, and we disobeyed God, we fell away from that perfection, that demands some sort of divine rescue. And that's where you get strange things like Jesus died for my sins. Yes. Which, for the life of me, I don't understand what people mean, and it strikes me as pretty much a guilt message. Uh, you know, we used to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus, and now we blame all the sinners. Right. Either way, it's a, it's a terrible message. Uh, yeah, you have to if, blame somebody. If, I, if my sins kill Jesus, then I'm a pretty awful person. Absolutely. It's a, a first-class guilt message, and it turns God into a monster. I mean, who wants I a God that will beat up on his son instead of you and me who really deserve it? And well, that's and the way other, right, that theology right, and it, works. It makes no and sense whatsoever. that makes God whatsoever. the ultimate child abuser. Right. If, if God kills Jesus when to punish you and me for our sins, I find that just the strangest kind of religious mentality. And uh, yet I it permeates the ranks of, of primitive and indeed Catholic and Protestant. And the more fundamentalist side of both of them, it permeates the ranks of this. The Mass in the Catholic tradition is the reenactment of the moment when Jesus died for our sins. And the Protestants, they sing all these bloody hymns, like Saved by the Blood and Washed in the Blood, and there's a fountain filled with blood, and, and, and that somehow the blood of Jesus is going to wash their sins away. Yeah. Uh, I think the whole purpose of, of the Christian faith, and I would say... Uh, more broadly, the whole purpose of the Judeo-Christian tradition and religion itself is to help every human being become more deeply and fully human. Yes. That's who I we are. And if you, what, what I found in, in the Gospel of John is that that's really what he's writing about. He says that if you, get, if you live deeply enough and fully enough, you transcend the limits of your humanity and you enter into the mystical experience of God. So that Jesus can say, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You've got to stay, got to stay closely related to me. And what yes. I think we used to call original sin is nothing but the, but the fact that every, every living creature, whether it's an insect or a plant or a mammal or a human being, every living creature is oriented to do everything possible to survive. Mm-hmm. So that we always put our own survival at the center of our existence. So you yes. act out of your survival mm-hmm. needs. Yes. That means every person, uh, because survival is the most important thing to me, subsumes everything in my need to survive. That means we're radically self-centered. 
Yes. And if, if the Jesus story can be properly understood, here is a Jewish man who transcended the limits of humanity so deeply that he could transcend even the survival nature and he could die loving those who put him to death. And yeah. that's the way he's portrayed in the Gospels. He's portrayed as praying for the soldiers who are driving the nails and being sensitive to the crowd is weeping beneath him. Uh, most human beings, when they're dying, are going to grasp at every second of life and they're going to try to prolong it. So they'll pray, they'll beg, they'll whine, they'll scream, they'll cuss, they'll fight, they'll do everything for one more, uh, one more moment of life because that's what yeah. it means. That's in our biology. Yeah, but, the but that's the whole Jesus point of ego. It transcends the limits of our biology, yeah. and that's where divinity lies. It doesn't <laughs> lie in, in some supernatural tale of divine uh, intervention in this world. It lies in that the human, when it's deeply and not fully human, can transcend the limits of the human and enter into the divine. And that's why I call that book Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Now, uh, what I'd like to share very briefly about that, because uh, we have a caller and we're going to be going to a break shortly. So I want to share with you that you're so in line with what I have been taught by my inner guidance and what, what I'm calling the new spirituality. Because what we're talking about is living oneness, which means we have to, we have to transcend the incredible instinctive ego base of our psyches. And yep. begin to live a life of feeling oneness with everything, including the plants, the animals, and everything else. So there's a, an amazing synchronicity in what you're saying. But what it takes for people to embrace the spirituality is a willingness to grow up and give up daddy. Because what I find so interesting about the paternalistic God, Father, is that it's, it's so clearly a lie. It so doesn't work. It is so demeaning, it is so painful, and it's so shame-based, and it makes no sense because how could God be perfect and have created us if we aren't? It just makes no sense. But that people are terrified of that transition into full adulthood and co-creation with the divine. So I just wanted to throw that out that we're, that we're amazingly in sync, and we are going to be going to a commercial break now. And when we come back, we have Helen from California calling on the line. You're listening to Inside Out, and we're talking to Bishop Jack Spong. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Hi, welcome back, everybody. I'm I'm interviewing, excuse me, Bishop John Shelby Spong, who was the... A bishop of Newark for 24 years and has was a maverick and in some ways still is because as far as I'm concerned he's right and that makes him 
if I think he's right, that means he's right, because he and I agree, which obviously makes the man right. So before I go on and ask him uh, the question, which I actually posed as part of our, you know why we're doing this show, is that why Christianity, why maintain Christianity instead of dumping it and creating a new spirituality? And I'm not asking you this in a confrontational way. I'm really interested in what you have to say. Yeah. But before that, we have a caller, Helen from California. Okay. Hi. Hi, well, Helen. Helen. Hi. I, I mean, I'm ask, I wanted to ask exactly the question that Beth just asked. Oh. <laughs> so well, I will just hang up and let her go on. Because <laughs> yes, yeah, so... That's exactly so Jack, the question I wanted to know. Thank you, thank you. Why do you feel... I mean, aside from your own sentimental connection and the fact that people already gather together, which, you know, has a certain power... Why do you think it's important to save Christianity per se? Well, as I look at history, I don't see any evidence that anybody ever starts a new religion. The religion evolves out of the past. Christianity was born in the womb of Judaism. Mm -hmm. We tried to transcend some of the limits of Judaism and move into a a universal uh, situation. I think now that religion itself poses such boundaries on the human spirit that we've got to have Christianity evolve beyond the limits of religion. And that's a, that's a really different uh, point of view. There was a great German theologian who was hanged by the Nazis in 1945 named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer used to say, we, as Christianity had to escape the boundaries of Judaism in the first century, so in our time Christianity's got to escape the boundaries of religion. Mm-hmm. If we want to continue to live, because religion has begun to press in upon our humanity instead of expanding our humanity. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that God is a Christian. I don't believe God is a Jew. I don't believe God is a Muslim. But I think all of these human religious systems are are systems through which millions of people have walked with integrity into the mystery of God. And I don't know how you can walk except inside a tradition. I was raised in the Christian West. I walked the Christ path. I think if I walk the Christ path deeply enough and fully enough, I will transcend the limits of Christianity. And if the Jewish people will walk their path deeply enough, they'll transcend the limits of Judaism, and the Muslims the same, and the Buddhists and the Hindus. And if we all do that, then on the other side of religion itself, we can sit down with one another, and I can say to you, Beth, Beth, this is the essence of the Christian faith that I receive by walking the Christ path, and I want to share it with you. And you mm-hmm. can say, well, Jack, this is the essence of the, of the Jewish path that I've walked, and I want to share it with you. And each of us gets to take on the richness of every other tradition, and nobody has to sacrifice the path through which they walk to find the reality of God. I don't believe you can walk abstractly. I think you've got to walk inside a tradition that is... Uh, the one in which you grow up, by and large. And I yes. have great respect for Buddhism, but I could not become a Buddhist because Buddhism is a cultural thing as much as it is a religious thing. Mm-hmm. And I could never become native in a Buddhist culture, and I don't have enough time left in my life to do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any, any great benefit to trying to convert people to a, a Western religion or an Eastern religion. I think you take what you have and you go into it as deeply as you can until you transcend its limits, and then you see the richness of all the other traditions. I like that, too, because in what we're calling the new spirituality, the idea is not to take people out of their religions. It's to imbue all religion with um, a kind of a unified belief system, which is not beliefs in the typical sense of, you know, I have this idea and you have that idea, but approaches maybe would be better, kind of tenets yeah. of ways of approaching humanity. One is with Bruce? compassion for healing people. Yeah. You know, the if second is to train people enough, in oneness. And, if you go deeply the, enough into the word that becomes translated spirit in the Hebrew tradition, Mm-hmm. you find that it doesn't have much to do with what we call religion or even with what we call spirituality. It has to do with becoming whole. Yes, uh, to be exactly. To spiritual in the Hebrew tradition means to be fully human. Yes. Uh, and I think we've got to recover that. I tell people I don't really like religious people. Uh, religious people are creepy to me. The more religious you are, the more creepy you are. 
And, and I say, that's an occupational hazard for my profession. But I like real people. I like whole people. I like honest people. I like open people. And religion tends to close us off. You mentioned yes. earlier some of the, the things about uh, the father figure. The primary purpose of the father figure, God, is to keep us as little children. Yes. We don't ever grow up. And that's why in yeah. evangelical religion, they're always exhorting their people to be born again. You've got to be born again. Well, the nice thing about being born again is that you never have to grow up. Exactly. If you just keep being born again, you can stay a child forever. So I don't think we need to be born again. I think we need to grow up. I think we need to mature. I think we need to get get away from this parent-child relationship that we've cultivated, and we call God the parent, and we're the mm-hmm. child, and grow into a different kind of, what it, of humanity, a different spirituality, to use your word. And I think that's where we're going, and that's what... That's what I would like to see the Christian faith move into. In the meantime, you see, we've got to keep the Christian faith from having its dark side. It's it's taught the world anti-Semitism. The most homophobic people in the world today are religious Mm -hmm. people, mostly Christian Mm -hmm. people. The Mm -hmm. former Pope kept calling calling gay and lesbian people deviant. That's only about 150 years out of date in medical and, and psychological times. It's a little embarrassing to have this representative figure of the Christian faith so out of date on something that is such a universal experience. Yes. So uh, that's what we've got to, and the idea that women can't be priests or can't be the Pope, I think that's absurd. And I'm the father of daughters. I don't want anybody telling my daughters at the moment they're born they can't be this, they can't be that. Uh, yes. I see nothing but, about the male body that makes the male body particularly godlike. Yeah, you know, I'd like to share something uh, about the the New Age movement because I see it as being infected by exactly the same kind of belief system as the uh, old, the old age movement, if you want to call it that, which is that um, people are still treating God as external, as outside them, even though they're using the words of "we are one" and you know God is within me, but they're still saying God is perfect and so am I, and that I'm going to use the power of God to manifest my egoic desires. And uh, to me, while that is a step forward from just saying I am passive and God is going to do anything God wants, it has kind of taken over. Uh, the ego has taken over God and has is using God for its own purposes, and it hasn't really broken out of um, the egoic way, the uh, in the sense of me, myself, and I, and moved into real oneness. It's just words, and, and it's still maintaining the parent-child relationship. So I see the New Age movement as being very similar. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not that familiar with the New Age movement, but I would say that that the human development religious movements are trying hard to break that. I, I, there's, a, there's a church that some people would call New Age called the Unity Movement, and I find them very healthy. And I find an awful lot of people who are broken by traditional religion wind up in unity to get healed because yeah. they, can, they can sort of grow into something very different. So I, I'm quite willing to be supportive of that. Uh, maybe new age is not any better than old age. I hadn't thought about that. I'll think about that just now that <laughs> new I'm age, in an new old thought. age. New age, new thought. But here's, I mean, there are things that are better, but you're, but we're still seeing a duality between us and God. And there yep. is still well, the I parent-child relationship. Think, See, and that, that duality has got to be broken. It's got to be broken. And we That's, have to get over our fear of taking on our own responsibility in order to do that. Also, another thing that I'd like to add that has been a problem, I think, in both religion and in the New Age and New Thought movements is that we are calling on people to change their behavior without giving them a way to do that. And if we don't, you know, I love what you're saying about wholeness. This is so much in alignment with what my experience is of, you know, 33 years and a counselor and a spiritual teacher is you can't preach to people and expect them to change. All you do is drive their dark side underground. And if you drive anything underground, it will always pop out and control you. And it Absolutely. creates well, so much Carl shame. Well, Young's great insight. You've got you've to accept your shadow and incorporate it into you. You don't go through life denying some things about right. yourself. Right. And I think Young speaks to me loudly. 
Mm-hmm. And beyond that, we need to offer people ways of healing so that they can actually, and I shouldn't say they because I'm one of them. You know, we all need healing and compassion for our dark side or our pain because it's really just being human. You know, we're all struggling with how do we manage to maintain uh, a belief and love and compassion when we're so scared, when our world is frightening, when we face all kinds of human-created problems, and then we face reality-based problems. And for people to be able to get past that fear and to get past the horrible impact of the traumatization that has happened to almost every human being who was born just because we have parents who were not well. I think you're going to learn to embrace that. Uh, I'm not going to ever escape my mortality. I'm not going to escape my self-consciousness. That's part of the uniqueness of being human, that we know we were born and we know we will die and we know we've got to struggle to find meaning and it's a fearful thing to be a self-conscious human being. Mm-hmm. And, but but you can't deny it. I don't want a Christianity that will give me peace of mind. I want a Christianity that will give me the courage to embrace the reality of my world and not fall apart. Oh, I, I totally agree. No, I, I totally agree. What I meant by that is we have healing modalities. I mean, there is psychology and we do counseling, for example, where we actually help people to overcome some of the trauma of their experience. But, I mean, I wrote a book called Living with Reality. I, I'm yeah. totally on the same page. We have to live with the reality of who we are. We have to work with our egos in order to make progress. And we need to acknowledge the pain and the trauma that human beings have rather than just preach to ourselves about how we should be different. And it's, uh, we, we need to support ourselves to evolve, but we can't be different from who we were born to be, which is to be human. And you, yeah, and if I ask a question? Of, I think you could transcend its limits, but I don't think you'll ever escape them. And, and to me, there's a slight difference in transcending what you cannot escape. You can then live with it. Yes. And we all have to live with mortality, for example. Absolutely. Uh, and what's wrong with it? No, uh, James, do you have a question or uh, a yes, comment? Yes, I do. Uh, I think if we, yes. were, if we didn't have mortality, I think we'd be the worst procrastinating creatures in the world. Well, not, not only that, we have all procrastination. I think it does. We we have so much uh, overpopulation at the moment. I don't know what we would do with all of these human beings. <laughs> uh, so James has yes. a, a comment or a question, yes, and I, we I only have, a, have a few minutes. Sure, I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been involved in the past uh, several decades, both in the New Age movement and the New Thought Unity type of movement. Uh, but I've made a lot of changes recently, especially since I've known Beth. But uh, the question I'd like to ask you is, I'm used to asking God, like saying things like, thy will not mine be done. What is your uh, concept of God? How do you relate to God in a way that isn't hierarchical or child-parent relationship? That's a good question. That's one I get asked frequently. And I, I begin my answer by saying, I cannot tell anybody who God is or what God is, and neither can anybody else. That's simply a human delusion. There's no reason to think the human mind can embrace the reality of God. I don't think a horse can tell another horse what it means to be human. I don't think a human being can tell another human being what it means to be God. So I start with that, with that premise. I think what I can do, and Beth has alluded to this, I think I can experience the reality of God. But as soon as I see that, I have to face the fact that I might be delusional. I've met a lot of people who had very powerful God experiences, and they, they were not capable of living in the real world. You know, they were simply a delusional experience that comes out of human pain. But, yes. but I don't think I'm delusional. Other people might disagree. So I, I share my that. experience, <laughs> and my experience is that I experience God as a source of life, so I worship God by living, and the more deeply and fully I live, the more I believe God becomes visible in me and through me, however God is defined. I experience God as a source of love. I think love flows throughout the universe. I think love is the love of God is present when a mama cat licks a baby kitten. But the mama cat isn't aware that that's the love of God. It comes to self-consciousness only in human beings. But if God is the source of love, then the only way I can worship God is by loving. Now, how can you be a part of a church that 
diminishes Jews or Muslims or women or homosexuals and still say that you believe in a God of love. I don't understand how anybody can do that. I'm going to have to interrupt you, Jack, because we have to announce our next show, and I am just dying to jump in there and say God is also the source of anger, hate, and everything else that exists because God is the totality, and we are expressions of that. So I'd love to talk to you about that, but I've got to uh, cede to James, and James, can you tell us? I understand that. You do. You, I'm sure you do. I would love to talk to you for at least two more hours. James, would you like to tell us what's coming up next week? Be happy to. Our next edition of Inside Out will be, Does Spirituality Improve Sex? We think so. <laughs> Religious beliefs, bad personal experiences, and ignorance can bring shame and dysfunction into intimate relationships, gay or straight. Spirituality can help us heal by supporting the release of old traumas and deepening our experience of oneness, intimacy, and energetic connection. Let's discuss how. Hear from Todd and Christine Benton, who have been in a sex and spirituality program for many years. Learn about their challenges as well as their victories over old patterns of alienation and disconnection. Host Beth Green will share as well. Beth has been teaching programs about sex and spirituality for over 30 years. And enjoy the unique perspectives of our guest hosts, the Guru and Madame Mazurka. This show could offer you both the comfort that you're not alone, and some guidance as to how to overcome the blocks to your own and your partner's fulfillment. Tune in, email questions, or call in live. Okay, thank you, James. We are out of time. Jack, I want to give you a big hug. (laughs) I'm sorry, we live so far apart. Oh, I am too. If you ever come out to the West Coast, I'd I'd love to meet you. And it's been so much fun, and thank you so very much. And thank you, James, and thank you to all our listeners. Uh, Thank you for another wonderful edition of Inside Out. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.